0: Well, welcome. Uh, My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors here at St. Peter's, and I am very exciting to be preaching. Very exciting? I am not very exciting. I meant very excited uh, to be preaching on Palm Sunday. This is one of my favorite Sundays of the year. Um, It's the Sunday we get to celebrate, as I've already said, Jesus riding into Jerusalem, everybody laying down cloaks, waving palm branches, singing, shouting, blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, it's an exciting day. I remember as a kid, we would go to church and we would get, uh, not palm branches like that, but we would get little palm crosses. Any of you guys ever seen these? And everybody would wave them as we were singing our songs and you got to take it home. It was very exciting. Um, but as I've gotten older and I've thought more about this text and more about this day, I've realized that it's not all exuberance. Um, there's a lot going on in this text. Uh, It's not just a day to remember and to celebrate. It's also a day to recognize that this is the Sunday that begins Jesus' journey towards the cross. It's a rich text. There's a ton going on in it. There's lots of vivid imagery. There's so many allusions and references. And it's really, really nuanced. There's something really deliberate happening here. Jesus is doing something very deliberate. And the best way I can think of to give you a sense of what what this means, all of this, is to talk about something entirely different, which is weddings. Um, I love going to weddings, and not just because I get to dance and make a fool of myself with all of my friends. I love the ceremony itself. I love everybody dressed up, the music, the flowers, the moment when the bride rounds the corner, and you look not at the bride, but you look at the groom, and you get to see his face when he gets to see his bride for the first time. I love that. But that's not why I want to talk about weddings. I want to talk about them because of what they represent. After the couple have made their vows to one another, the man gives the rings to the priest or the pastor, and this is, these are the words from the Book of Common Prayer. The priest prays this, Sanctify, O Lord, these rings, that they may be to these thy servants a token of their solemn vows and a pledge of pure, endless love through Jesus Christ our Lord. See, the ring itself doesn't actually constitute the marriage. I can, I can take off my ring and I'm still married, The ring is a symbol of something greater that's going on. In fact, you can look at the entire wedding as a symbol, uh, a symbolic action of a sort. We gather our family and friends together in a church, we process, we stand here, we stand there, we exchange rings, we say vows, we kiss, all of this stuff happens, so on and so forth. These things are not in and of themselves a marriage. They are a symbolic action whereby I pledge myself to my wife, Or, my wife pledges herself to me. We enter into a lifelong covenant with one another. The whole symbolizes something far greater than itself. It symbolizes a greater change, two people becoming one flesh. It's a sudden, dramatic, and a powerful action, and it's soon over. But the change that it symbolizes is only just beginning. Now, the reason I'm talking about this, about weddings, is because this is a great way of thinking about what is going on on Palm Sunday. What's taking place as Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. This whole procession, the palm branches, the road covered in cloaks, the young donkey, the shouts of blessed is the king, it all symbolizes something greater than itself. And this symbolic action, as it were, symbolizes something far more than words could ever say. Jesus is making a very specific claim about himself through this. He's claiming that he is, in fact, the Messiah. He's the coming king. He's the one in whom is found the hope of the world. So this is what I want to do in this sermon. First, I want to look at what exactly is Jesus doing with this action of riding into Jerusalem? What's it all about? Second, I want to look at the various reactions to it in the text. And then lastly, I want to look at why it's so important that we get this right, that we understand who Jesus is claiming himself to be. So, without further ado, open up your Bibles. Luke chapter 19, beginning at verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. Jesus has been on a journey to Jerusalem for much of the gospel of Luke. It began way back in in chapter 9. Luke records this. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he, that is Jesus, set his face to go to Jerusalem. this is 10 chapters ago, he sets out on this journey to go to Jerusalem. And from this, we can gather that Jesus isn't just going to Jerusalem for a bit of sightseeing. He's going to Jerusalem because Jerusalem is tied up intimately with his death, his resurrection, his ascension. Jesus has been relentless in his desire to finally reach that city. And the journey that he's been on climaxes in this scene that we saw this morning. And he's close to Jerusalem now. Look at the next The next verse. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples. Bethany was a village about two miles outside of Jerusalem on the eastern slopes of the Mount of Olives. And it's here that all these these final pieces of the puzzle fall into place. And he sends two of his disciples saying, uh, Go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. Now think about it. This is is pretty curious, isn't it? Very curious instruction that he gives his disciples. At no other time in the gospel is Jesus ever recorded as riding on an animal. He rides in a boat at one point. Try not to have the song playing in your head. Uh, But other than that, he walks everywhere he goes. He even walks on water. So why now? Why at this very moment does he decide, I need a young donkey to ride on? He's walked nearly the entire way, but now he wants a young donkey. Curious, I think. Plus, Jesus tells them exactly what they're going to find when they go to get this donkey. He says they'll find a colt of a donkey. Luke doesn't say it's actually a donkey, but John and and Matthew do. So we can assume that it is, in fact, a donkey. Uh, And more than that, it's a donkey that nobody has ever sat on. Nobody's ever ridden it. And Jesus even tells them how to respond when somebody's going to ask them, why are you taking this animal? Tell them the Lord needs it. It's all very curious, I think. So the disciples go ahead to the village and they find it exactly as Jesus told them it would be. Jesus not only predicted that there would in fact be an unridden colt, but its owners ask, Why are you untying it? And the disciples reply, The Lord needs it. And, and that's it. No other questions. Why are you untying it? The Lord needs it. Okay, fine, take it. Oh, why didn't you say so? Go ahead, take it. Now, there's some debate as to exactly what's going on in this scene. Some have argued that this is a a later addition to the text. This is a nice way of just kind of dismissing something miraculous. Uh, I don't agree with that. Others say that Jesus somehow planted the donkey there and that this, tell them the Lord needs it, is some kind of secret code that they had established. I I don't really agree with that reading of it either. Um, Others, and I'm more inclined to favor this view, don't, don't really see a problem with this at all. Uh, in this culture, there's a, a custom where a major religious or a political figure can go and it can request the use of livestock. Isn't that cool? It's called angaria. Uh, so it's possible if the owners had heard about Jesus and when the, the disciples go and they say the Lord needs it, they're like, oh, that's fine, go ahead, take it. Angaria, of course you can have my unridden donkey. But there's a bigger question looming over all of this, which is why is there so much detail about it? Luke spends about half of the triumphal entry account, on the colt, about it being tied up and untying it, and how you're going to find it, and who's going to ask what. Why is it so significant that Luke would spend this much time talking about it? I mean, the Gospels are not known for their great detail most of the time, so when you get a lot of it, you have to slow down, you have to ask why. And there's two things I want to say about why there's so much detail about this. The first is that this entire scene is a confirmation of the fact that Jesus is a prophet, That he knows how it's going to be when when he sends his disciples to go and get this cult. This isn't a scene he's set up like a magician. He's trying to fool his audience. He hasn't sent somebody to prearrange this. He's simply stating how things are. And that's significant. The second thing about this, and the reason why Luke spends so much time on this exchange, is that it's dripping with royal significance. Now, that probably isn't immediately obvious. So let's talk a bit about it. I've already said Jesus is making a claim about himself through this. He's making a claim that he is, in fact, this long-expected king, the Messiah, the one who's going to come and save his people. Uh, Back in Genesis chapter 49, verses 10 and 11, Jacob is giving a blessing over all of his children. And and this is what he says. I've got to find it now. Genesis 49, verse 10 and 11. You can... there with me if you like. because it's taking me a long time to find it. This is what he says to Judah. Then the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. This is a prophecy that Jacob is praying over Judah about a king that is to come who's going to bind his colt full of a donkey to a vine. There's a really important contrast going on too, which is that this ruler in Genesis is, is characterized by great wealth, by opulence, but Jesus has to actually go and borrow a colt. And that's significant, and you'll come to see why in a little bit. Then there's Jesus describing the colt as one on which nobody has ever yet sat, And this might not seem like a significant detail, but it is. It's a reference to another reading we heard this morning, Zechariah 9.9. Zechariah refers to a king of peace who is coming, who is going to sit on a new colt, that is an unridden colt. Lastly, there's the fact that Jesus tells the disciples that they will be able to take the animal when the owners ask who needs it, and they say the Lord has need of it. In other words, Jesus' rights to ownership over this animal supersede those of its actual owners. In the same way that a king's rights to something and his needs supersede the needs of his people. So the disciples obey. They go and they get the colt and they bring it back to Jesus. And then they throw their cloaks on this colt. And they set Jesus on it. Jesus does not initiate this. His disciples do. Jesus doesn't get on the donkey himself. They place him on it. But he doesn't disagree with it. He allows them to do it. And what happens next is the most incredible image, I think. As he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. The crowd is making a sort of red carpet for Jesus. Imagine it. Imagine all the different colors and the textures of the cloak along this road, forming a tapestry as Jesus rides along. I mean, what prompts this? Why do people do this? Why do they take their cloaks off and put them on the ground? I mean, this is not something I've ever done. I mean, this too has resonances in the Old Testament. There's another story in the book of Kings, and it's a great story. Uh, The prophet Elisha, he gets a word from the Lord that he needs to anoint Jehu as king. So he sends another prophet to Jehu. And this prophet goes into Jehu, and he says, I need to talk to you. And he pulls him aside, and he takes him somewhere else, and he pours oil over his head, and he anoints him as king over Israel. And when Jehu walks back outside, his friends say to him, uh, is everything all right? What did this madman want with you? And he says, you know the man and the sort of things that he says. And they say, that's not true. You tell us why he came to you. And Jehu says, "He is here is what he told me. The Lord says, I anoint you as king over Israel. And as soon as these other officers heard this, they take off their cloaks and they spread them on the bare steps beneath him. And they blow the trumpet and they claim Jehu is king. Laying down their cloaks is a kind of visceral reaction to this news. There's no thinking about it, no deliberating as to whether or not this person is actually worthy of this. It's immediate. Both stories, people are confronted with something and someone so great that the only reaction they can do is take off their cloak and put it down on the ground. As though this person, they're saying, is so good, so important, so great that they shouldn't even be standing on the ground. It's a treatment reserved for a king. Let's keep going. 1937 to 38. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And here we have it at last. It's explicit. It's explicit. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. But what kind of king is this, people are asking. I mean, this isn't clearly the opulent king that was talked about in Genesis. This isn't the king of war that Jehu is. So what kind of king is Jesus? And the answer to this question lies in the other text that we've already talked about. Zechariah 9, 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation, is he, humble and mounted on a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he, he shall speak peace to the nations. He shall rule, his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. This is not a warrior king. This is not an opulent, a wealthy king. This is a humble king who comes on a donkey, a king of peace, comes to bring peace to his people. See, Israel has been waiting for a king for a long time, someone who's going to restore them to right relationship with God, someone who's going to free them from foreign rule. someone who's going to usher in God's presence to them. And they've been watching Jesus do all of these things, all these incredible things. The blind receives their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, good news is preached to the poor. And everyone wants to know, everybody's asking, is this guy the one? I mean, is this the guy we've been waiting for? And Jesus refuses to come out and say it. He just won't admit it. In Luke chapter 9, there's this great exchange with the disciples Where Jesus asks them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answer, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah. And and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. And Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And Peter's right. But Jesus doesn't say, you're right, Peter. He, He strictly charges them. He commands them to be quiet about it. Not to say anything. Not to tell anybody about that. And so people continue asking, is this guy the one? And he keeps performing miracles, and he keeps preaching about the kingdom of God being at hand, and the questions persist. Is he the one? He won't answer it. But then we get this scene. You want to know why this scene is so important? Why it's so remarkable? Because Jesus is finally answering the question of who are you? And he's saying, I am. I'm the one but he doesn't do it with words. He does it with a sudden, dramatic, a powerful action. It speaks far louder than words could speak. He takes all of these Old Testament expectations and the prophecies about the coming king, and he fulfills them all in this one scene. And he says, bam, you want to know who I am? There it is. Check me out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. She who has eyes to see, let her see. I am the one you've been waiting for. The triumphal entry is so remarkable because Jesus is taking all of these scenes from the Old Testament and he he fits them into this one action. Any one of these things on their own wouldn't be at all significant, really. But when you take all of these things together, the wealth of imagery about this king, you have a scene that has monumental significance. That is what the triumphal entry is about. Jesus is saying, yes. Yes. I am the one you've been waiting for. So, what about our second point? What are people's reactions to this? If Jesus really is the one that he's claiming he is, then you would expect people to have pretty dramatic reactions to this. And they do. They have dramatically positive reactions and dramatically negative reactions. The first reactions Luke records are those of the disciples. Now, this doesn't refer to just the 12 disciples. It doesn't refer to the 70 disciples that are talked about. It refers to the entire multitude of disciples that are now traveling with Jesus towards Jerusalem. And it's these who begin to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all of the mighty works that they've seen. And it's finally here with this symbolic action of Jesus riding into Jerusalem on this colt that people finally get to express this hope that they've had you ever seen those old videos of the Beatles arriving in a new city? Yeah? Beetle mania, beetle hysteria. They couldn't even get off the plane, and they were being swarmed by people, mostly women, but some men, uh, just screaming at the top of their lungs and fainting, the men that is, and, and crying. And that's a lot how I imagine this scene with Jesus. I mean, it's probably not quite like that, but I, I like to think of it like that. They had seen Jesus do all of these amazing things, wondering if he might be the coming king. And now they finally get to shout it out. And they use the words of Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Psalm 118 in ancient Israel was a, uh, a royal entry psalm. It was used every year during the reenthronement ceremony for the king. And it's a psalm that's tied up intimately with Israel's hope for a, a future king. And so when the crowds burst forth in praise with this psalm, the claim they are making is unmistakable. In fact, they even swap out the he in Psalm 118 for the king. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus is that king, they are saying. And they say, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And what this should bring to your mind is the angels hailing Jesus at his birth. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. The people are ecstatic. They know exactly who Jesus is. And he's finally admitting it. Or at least they think they know who he is. And for many of us, this is our reaction to the story as well. I mean, you're thinking, yes, this is a great story. Jesus riding in on a donkey, people shouting, cloaks on the ground. This is awesome. Somebody get me a palm branch. But this isn't the only reaction to the scene. Some of you might be thinking, in reference to this story, this is ridiculous. This is the stupidest thing I've ever seen. People taking off their jackets, putting them on the road so a guy on a donkey can walk on them. This This is ridiculous. What kind of a king rides on a baby donkey anyways? And you wouldn't be alone in that reaction. Because this is exactly how the Pharisees react to it. Look at verse 39. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Rebuke your disciples. They know that they have no chance of quieting this crowd. So they go to Jesus, hoping that he might oblige, hoping that he might tell the disciples, okay, everybody, calm down. We're just going to walk in silence from here on out. But his response is startling, isn't it? Verse 40, he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. What Jesus is saying is that their blindness is so deep that even inanimate creation, rocks, know better who Jesus is than they do. They have a better understanding of what's going on. The Pharisees have become so blinded by their own plans for what's going to happen, by their own vision for what the Messiah is going to be like, that they completely miss him. And before you jump to dismissing the Pharisees, recognize that we've all done it. We all know exactly what God should be like. We know how he should respond in all situations. We know how he should treat us, treat the poor, treat the rich, treat the powerful. How he should deal with pain, how he should deal with suffering. And we become so blinded by our own expectations of what God is going to be like that we miss him. We miss the bigger things that he's trying to accomplish. We miss the work that he's already doing. And we so easily move from the response of the disciples to the response of the Pharisees. And it happens because we don't actually listen to who Jesus is, who he says he is. We get caught up in the ecstasy of the whole thing, and we fail to realize that what Jesus is calling is actually going to cost us something. What Jesus wants from his disciples is their hearts, but not in the sense of an emotional reaction to an exciting moment. He wants hearts that are surrendered, willing, obedient to his voice, hearts that wait for him to tell us who he is. And what that means. Because if we just get caught up in the moment praising Jesus that we've we've crafted in our own imagination. Then there's going to come a day and a day very soon when you realize that that's not who he is. There will come a day when you realize that you cannot have that Jesus that's in your mind. And the way things really are. And you'll reject him. Like the Pharisees, you'll want nothing to do with him. You want to know how we go from shouts of Hosanna and blessed today to shouts of crucify him on Friday? Because we missed them. They were expecting a very particular kind of a king, and they got another. They got a king who threatened their ways of doing things, that threatened the way they thought about God and about the world, and so they got rid of him. What I want to end with, last section, is why it's so important that we get this right. And I want to do that by looking at verses 41 to 44. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. When Jesus finally lays eyes upon the city, he stops, and he weeps over the city that he's been trying to get to for so long. Literally, he bursts into sobbing over the city, because they've missed it. What have they missed? Look at the first line. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes. They've missed their opportunity for peace, Jesus is saying. And in the Gospel of Luke, peace means something very specific. It is not uh, political peace with the Romans. It's not inner tranquility, that kind of a peace. I'm so peaceful right now. Not like that, although that might come. Peace in Luke refers to something way bigger than that. It's a term for salvation. It means to be made right with God. And all the social, material, and spiritual transformations that come along with that. What he's saying through his tears is that you, Jerusalem, a city filled with those desperate to know God, you have missed your chance for relationship with him. You have missed your chance to know the Father. And in verse 44, that last verse, he brings down the final charge. He tells them why. They've missed it. Because you did not know the time of your visitation. Visitation is a term that means God's coming. Both for salvation and for judgment. I like the NIV better. Because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Not only have you missed understanding me as the rightful king, Jesus says. Coming to claim his throne. But you've actually missed seeing that I am God. God. amongst you. And to my mind, this is the climax of the entire scene, and it comes at its lowest point. He prophesies that they're going to be torn down to the ground, that not one stone will be left on another, because God came to them, and they missed him. The Jewish historian Josephus, he records about the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, and he shows just how right Jesus was about what was going to happen. We have to get this right. We all have different ideas, different expectations of God, what he's going to be like, how he's going to act, how he's going to respond. And it's okay to have those ideas and those expectations, as long as you're willing to let them go when the God of Scripture reveals himself to be something else, to be doing something else. And if this scene shows us anything, it's that we must let Jesus himself tell us who he is. And what he's come to do. We have to seek him in the scriptures. And be prepared to be surprised. I love that quote from Keller. Colin read at the beginning. Jesus' purpose is not to warm our hearts. It's to shatter our categories. Because if we aren't willing to let Jesus himself tell us who he is. If we think we can have a Jesus of our own creation. A soft and easy Jesus. A Jesus who was a great teacher, but who wasn't actually God, come amongst us. A Jesus who's just one voice amongst a hundred others to be listened to and obeyed. Then we too are going to move quickly from shouting praise to asking him to be silent and finally telling him to just go away. So as we head into this week, into Holy Week, I want this question to be imprinted on your hearts and on your minds. Am I willing to lay aside my own plans, my own expectations and ideas about who Jesus is, and let him show me? Because to miss him as he rides in front of us on his colt is to miss the time of God's coming to us. It's to miss our chance for peace. Amen.